God, we believe in, we, in you. And we know that you love us as your children. We know that you want to bring justice, mercy and compassion to every person in this world. And so we lift up our family around the world who are being persecuted for following you. Strengthen them with your all-surpassing grace and love as they face fear and punishment. Fill them with courage to keep spreading the word about the freedom that only you can offer. Change the hearts and minds of authorities and people who are against you, God. Would your light break through in miraculous ways? Thank you that in the end, the victory in all things are in your hands. Amen. Amen. Guys, uh, I feel like there's a little bit of, um, people look even more glum now because they've realised I'm still going to do a talk. (laughs) We are still going to look at the Bible, friends, because it's really good. Um, so yeah, if you're wandering around, grab a, grab a seat at some point and grab a Bible. There should be some dotted around the room. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 to 17. Um, we've been going through the book of Revelation right at the end of the Bible for the past three weeks. And this is our fourth and final week of our series, Red Letter Cities. And it's named as such because in many Bibles... Uh, maybe in yours, the words of Jesus are highlighted in red. And in Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches from Jesus, and they are his words to them. Now, Revelation is a bit of a tricky book. And actually, when um, if you look into it, there's actually quite a bit of debate and differing theories about how we should interpret it. Um, and it's, it was written by someone called John, who was a follower of Jesus, and he was a starter and leader of churches in the first century. If you skip to the first chapter, you can see that it is a written account of a vision John has whilst exiled on the island of Patmos. He's been in prison there because of his faith and leadership, because he was undermining the authority of Rome, who were running basically the world at this point. Uh, John talks about the end of time. He talks about seeing the end of the world. Jesus returning to earth to redeem and renew all things and bring about a new heaven and a new earth. But contrary to what you might have heard previously, um, not in this series, but elsewhere, um, Revelation isn't about foretelling the future or reimagining the past. It isn't like a case book for, uh, in case you want to know when the apocalypse is, this is how it's going to happen. Revelation is about unveiling. It's about the unveiling of heaven's closeness to earth. It reveals that heaven isn't some far-off, abstract place, but it's as close as pulling up the curtain of our physical reality to see what's happening behind the scenes in the spiritual, in God's realm. Revelation is also an unveiling of Jesus because we see him in his glory and power and might in a different way and the different aspects that we didn't see him when he was living on earth. And in these letters, Jesus is direct. If you've been here for the previous three weeks, you will have seen that. This is the only time in the Bible where Jesus is seen to address his church directly. He spoke to his followers previously when he was on earth, but um, the church only started after he ascended, after Pentecost. So this is the time that we get to see what he thinks of the church and what he wants to say to them directly. Like I said, there's seven letters, um, and they're definitely grounded in the reality of those places and people of that time. So it refers to like different landmarks and, and things that are particular about those places. Um, however, the number seven throughout the Bible is used to signify wholeness or completeness. So these letters are also addressed to the whole of the church, the complete church across the world and across time. So it applies to us as well. 
And the letter we're looking at today is absolutely addressed to Pergamum, to the church there, but also addressed to G2 and all other churches. Um, the resounding point of the letter is to remain true to Jesus. It's how Jesus commends them, and it's what he challenges them on as well, to be faithful to him. But what does faithfulness mean to us today? What does faithful mean in our culture? Where do we, receive, where do we see it like referred to most? I was once playing out on my bike with some friends called Faye and Lauren, I was about eight years old. And they lived just a couple of streets away and they said they had to pop home to see if their mums um, would let them stay out a little bit longer. And they said, oh, you wait here uh, at the bottom of your drive. It's not a big drive, but still, wait at the bottom of your drive because I wasn't allowed to leave my street on my bike. I'm a very bad cyclist. Um, <laughs> and, um, and we'll go home and ask our mums if we can stay. And I was like, sure. An hour later, my mum arrives home to me sat by my bike at the bottom of the drive in the rain, still waiting. And she says, Holly, I saw them half an hour ago having ice lollies in Lauren's garden. Loyal. Man. Anyway, you can come and ask me what happened next, because it's great. (laughs) My mum got really involved. Anyway... (laughs) Faithfulness. We hear a lot about God's faithfulness in church. And we hear uh, a bit in our culture about people being faithful within uh, romantic relationships, so not cheating on their partner or spouse. Um, I don't know if this is because of like the echo chamber that must exist, um, but when I Google searched faithfulness, because I was like, where do people see faithfulness in culture? I couldn't find anything outside of like Christianity. I was like, oh my life, <laughs> there's nothing else except When I've been preparing this talk, there is one song that is also about faithfulness, which is, I want you to finish the line. I never knew there was a love like this before. Thank you, Peter Jacobs. Okay. Never had someone to show me love. I'm just going to carry on, guys. Not like this before. You got a $20 bill, put your hands up. Got a $50 bill. No one's putting their hands up. Thank you. I was going to say, because we're all on contactless giving, that's why. (laughs) That's the only other reference to it. And actually, in that song, if anyone wants to tell me, there doesn't seem to be any reference to faithfulness at all. Uh, It doesn't seem to be about being faithful. Um, What is faithfulness? If someone is faithful to their husband or wife, is it just about them not sleeping with someone else? Or is it not just about sex, but it's about can people be emotionally unfaithful? Or is it just about the way they treat their spouse? What do you think? Faithfulness is actually quite hard to pin down. Is there a spectrum of different extents of faithfulness or remaining true? What about people speaking dishonoringly or nastily behind a friend or spouse's back? Are they still faithful? Have you had people who have betrayed you? Have you done this to other people? Does faithfulness only last as long as we feel like it? Does faithfulness matter? To what extent should we be faithful? And what is our faithfulness to God like? If you count yourself as a follower of Jesus, how do you remain faithful to him? Is it just a case of showing up to church every now and then? Is it just a case of not worshipping a different God? Or is there more to it than that? Is it about the way we speak about Jesus or have a relationship with him? 
do we vary in, our, in the extent of our faithfulness to God? How much can we join in with stuff that isn't for Jesus or isn't pro-Jesus? Lots of people would put it like, how can we be in the world but not of it? Are we doing a bit of a black and white faithfulness thing with Jesus where we're being emotionally unfaithful? But we're like, oh, it's fine because I still show up to church. Do we idolise money or sex or a person or a lifestyle? Is Jesus our first love, our primary passion? Do we share all our love, all our life, all we own with him? Or are we holding him at arm's length or keeping things from him? Or sneaking around in a relationship that we shouldn't be in? Are you just in a casual relationship with Jesus so therefore it kind of justifies your unfaithfulness? Does that seem a bit intense for me to put it like that? To what extent should we be faithful? And the church in Pergamon faced the same questions. They were people like you or I. They were living under the oppression of seemingly all-powerful Rome. Very different from us in that sense. In a city where worship of Caesar was non-negotiable. Allegiance to Rome was above all else and inescapable. To what extent do you join in in that situation? Do you go to the festivals that celebrate Caesar? Or do you rebel by your conspicuous absence and potentially end up jailed or killed for the sake of turning up to a festival? Do you just go along to the festival, but you're like, oh, I won't eat the food, though, that's been sacrificed to other gods? Do you go along to the daily or weekly worship of Caesar, but you just kind of pretend or worship Jesus instead, whilst everyone else does their thing? Do you organise an uprising? Do you fight back when your friends and family are taken away and you never see them again? Or do you turn the other cheek? Or is that allowing injustice? Do you lie when your neighbours ask about the church that you're trying to run in your basement? Do you run away? Do you stick it out? To what extent do you join in? To what extent should you be faithful? It's the same for Pergamum as it is for us. Different questions, but all around. To what extent do we need to be faithful? What is Jesus calling us to? Pick up your Bibles. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. If you haven't got a Bible, you can look it up online and it'll be on the screen as well. Let's read together and see what Jesus wants to say to us and to Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. Now the angel, just to pause, that's a leader or a messenger to a church. That's not a literal winged being. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. These are the words of him, Jesus, who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We've already talked about the context of this church, that they were persecuted and that they were living in a culture of hostility. 
Luke last week talked about how Sardis had a culture of uh, comfort, kind of like lots of places in the West. And he talked about it being very similar to York. And Han spoke to us about uh, the week before how Thyatira had a culture of self-importance, almost like LA. Pergamum has a culture which was hostile and dangerous where Satan had his throne, where their leaders are put to death, like Antipas. Pergamon was a major centre of Roman power. It was significant for being a centre of worship for Caesar, and also worship of a Greek god, small g god, called Ascalipius, who was a god uh, of healing, like a demigod. Uh, and Jesus is referring to this worship of Caesar and other gods when he says, where Satan has his throne where false gods are worshipped and sacrificed to. But he's also referring to an actual landmark, which is there was a big temple on a cliff edge in Pergamum. I tried to Google this earlier, and then I was like, oh, yeah, it was like 2,000 years ago. Um, (laughs) No one took photos, Um, (laughs) which was the main landmark. Uh, So there's a big cliff, big temple on it, and it was um, a temple to Caesar, and it was fashioned to look like a throne. So he's also like doing this dual thing where he's talking about what's literally there and also um, he's um, talking about uh, other stuff as well. He's talking about actual Satan. Um, As he says in the letter, he sees where they live. He knows it. He's not talking in the purely metaphorical. Jesus referring to Satan might raise some questions. He's not saying that Greek gods or Caesar or other uh, dictators are literally Satan. Um, He's pointing out that behind those kind of figures, behind other gods, behind authoritarian dictators um, that demand worship and questions allegiance, Satan, uh, powers of evil, are pulling the strings. Uh, They're used by and puppets of spiritual powers of evil that oppose Jesus and his purposes. There is power behind the human evil that we see in the world. There's more to it than just people. There's loads more, and I'm sure lots of people will be like, oh my goodness, I didn't think that was real. Uh, There's loads more we could talk about uh, Satan and how Jesus talks about him, but we're not going to delve into that today. Um, And we have covered this before in G2, so um, do refer back to other talks, but do ask um, someone if you're particularly confused. But the main thing is, there is more to what we see in the world underneath the curtain. Jesus says to Pergamum, I see where you live. I see that you live in a culture which is dangerous and opposes you. I see your struggles and your difficulties. I see the cost and the sacrifice you're making to follow me. Even when your leader was killed, you remain true to my name. You remain true to me. Another way of thinking of this and translating it is that they remained faithful to Jesus. The letter then goes on to talk about that there are some things that Jesus has against Pergamum which seems maybe a bit harsh given the circumstances. We're like, oh my goodness, they're, you know, they're being hounded on every side and Jesus is like, ah, oh, there's something else though. Maybe we should dig deeper and find out a bit more. He's against the fact that some of you, he says, hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. For the specifics of sexual immorality, please refer to Hannah's talk a couple of weeks ago or the student podcast that was released in the past week because, again, that's another thing that we don't have time to cover today. Um, But who the heck are Balaam and Balak? (laughs) That's where we should start. Um, So like the letter to Thyatira a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is referring to Old Testament figures to make his point. He's using stories that would have been well-worn and well-known amongst the community. It's like me being like, oh, it's like Cinderella, or it's like this or that, to 
illustrate and help them understand is to show that the church in Pergamum is not the first to be living in a hostile environment because he's alluding to a time when the Israelites were camped out in the desert for 40 years. They're God's people. The church of Pergamum, the persecuted church, and those of us who maybe feel that we're in a barren and hostile place, even though not persecuted, are not alone because God's people often find themselves in that place. But who the heck are Balaam and Balak, you say? Did you know that there is a talking donkey in the Bible? Did anyone know that? It's a great story. Fiona knew it. No one else put their hand up, but I wasn't really asking you to. Thank you, Fiona, anyway. Um, You can read about it in Numbers 22 to 25. It's a really good story about why we shouldn't abuse animals, actually, uh, and how God protects his people. But we're not focused on the donkey, but that is uh, an important part of it. So, Numbers 22 to 25 details the time when God's people, the Israelites, were living in the desert, having escaped from slavery in Egypt. And the environment and surrounding nations are hostile to them. They feel threatened and suspicious of this massive group of people who have all of a sudden just turned up, are living in the desert, and there's like millions of them. So, the king of the Moabites, who's one of these nations, and this king is called Balak. He's really nervous because he doesn't think his army can take on God's people. So he decides to hire a non-Israelite prophet, like a seer or a a witch kind of person. uh, And he's called Balaam. That's who they are. Um, I think in the picture, that angel isn't either of them. But you can see there's a donkey and that's Balaam doing a small dab. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It doesn't say that in numbers. Um, Balaam is the figure of compromise in the Bible. He's actually referred to loads um, throughout because um, he's this figure who will work for anyone and do anything for money. But he knows God's will. He's like tuned in to what the Almighty is saying, but he doesn't do it. It's a really confusing story to read because if you read it kind of face value, he never says anything wrong. But under the service, he actually never does anything right. He never says anything wrong, but he never does anything right. Balak, the king, asked Balaam to curse the Israelites and to destroy them by calling down a curse on them and spiritual powers of evil. And three times, Balaam, they go all the way around the edge of the desert. I don't know how you do that. Three times, Balaam tries to do this, but he ends up each time blessing the Israelites um, because God literally like prevents him from cursing them he literally puts the words into his mouth and God protects his people but after everyone goes home Balaam advises Balak the king to send in Moabite women with the sole purpose of seducing and distracting the Israelites and the women bring in all their own gods and idols and sacrifices and practices and all of a sudden the people in Israel may have not been destroyed by a curse but they are distracted from their purpose and they're distracted from their God. It all ends in misery and violence before they come back to God. So in this letter, by referring to Balaam and Balak, Jesus is drawing the church in Pergamum and our attention to a few things. Jesus is saying, there might be more to faithfulness than maybe they had thought. Perhaps faithfulness is a bigger call because they'd remain true to his name, to his authority. They're like, yeah, I'm a believer, but not 
to the fullest extent. They've asked questions of, to what extent should we join in? To what extent do we blend in? Jesus reminds them that although they've not renounced him entirely, although they've avoided being destroyed, they've allowed themselves to become distracted, which is just as dangerous. Like Balaam, they have compromised, never saying anything wrong, but not necessarily doing everything right. And that doesn't mean getting everything right all the time. It's that knowing the will of God, but not necessarily wanting to follow through on it. Like the Israelites, they've been distracted by things that may seem insignificant. Their food, their festivals, the places they go, the people they sleep with or get into relationships with, the casual joining in and blending in. Even smaller things, think of tiny everyday things, the kind of things you look on at um, social media, the kind of things you look at in shops, the kind of things you want to buy, all the little things that occupy your mind, the worries and the fears, the stuff that goes through your head at night. It's the small things where Jesus is like, that's also really important. How much does that ring true for us? With Jesus in name and in status, but in the things that we've decided aren't important, in our money or our time or our love or our energy, we're actually not being totally faithful to him. I'm not saying that everything we do has to be explicitly church or Jesus related. Note that Jesus does not say, run away from nasty old Pergamum and just stay in your church bubble. No, the whole of Revelation calls followers of Jesus to stick with it, to keep offering Everyone, even those who persecute you, the invitation of God to freedom and to new life in him. Jesus is saying, you know, you know in your hearts, as some of you have compromised, you've allowed yourself to get distracted. You've joined in with gossip or you've let your mind wander. And now what was a one-off is now a habit. You've been distracted by an image that you need to maintain or a reputation that you need to uphold. You care more about what people think of you than what Jesus thinks of you. You've decided you know better than God about a few things. In Ephesians 6 verse 16, it talks about the flaming arrows of the enemy. Um, So in Roman armies, they would shoot flaming arrows and actually they wouldn't aim to directly hit someone on the opposing side necessarily. It was more about causing chaos and distraction. You may not be destroyed, but you're being distracted into unfaithfulness. How do we in the church of Pergamum escape this? How can we remain faithful? The original word for remaining true or faithful in the passage is criteo, which means to hold on to, to grip or to seize. It's used in contrast to people holding on to the teachings of Balaam or the Nicolaitans. So the question I want to ask you is, what else are we holding on to? Are you only holding on to Jesus? Or are we holding on to, as I often do, family, our sense of identity, our skills, our reputation. We're trying to hold Jesus on one side and hold everything else we want on the other hand. And then it ends with, to the one who is victorious, that is, the one who lays their life down for Jesus. When Jesus talks about having victory in Revelation, it isn't about um, them like beating all the baddies. It's actually about laying down your life for those who even persecute you. It's laying down your life as Jesus did. The one who follows Jesus to the end is given hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. 
Manna is the bread which, um, it was kind of like a bread, um, which God sent miraculously on a daily basis to the Israelites during the 40 years in the desert. Jesus is saying, be faithful to me and I will sustain you. No matter what happens, I'll be everything you need. Let me sustain you. That's the hidden manna. And then the white stone with a new name refers to a few different things throughout the Bible. The white stone um, was typically used for inscriptions in Pergamum, um, where most of the buildings were in black local stone. Um, white stones also in the Bible were used to vote yes in elections or in other votes. And uh, also white stones could be a reference to the glowing stones that are used by priests in the Old Testament to represent God's purity and God's word. But Jesus is saying, in summary, I'll make you new. I'll redefine you. I'll give you a new name. My yes vote is on you. I'll give you a name, not one that you've been given in Pergamum in a hostile place, which is the lowest of the low, but I'll give you a name that truly represents you. I'll speak something over your identity, which is something that no one else has seen, no one else could understand. I'll speak to the deepest depths of the essence of who you are. Let me speak something of who I created you to be. To what extent should we be faithful? To what extent do we join in? I think Jesus wants to call us back to faithfulness. I think for some of us here, we've thought of it as a black and white thing. And if we keep showing up, then that's faithfulness. And it is. But actually, Jesus says there is more to faithfulness than that. He wants some of us here to allow him to sustain us. He wants some of us here to allow him to redefine us. For some of us here, um, you may not follow Jesus, and this might be the first time that you've heard that God wants to do that for you. And so for some, it's to do that for the first time, to ask for faith in Jesus, to step into that. Would you stand with me? It says in the passage that these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And the sharp, double-edged sword is um, representative of God's word, which cuts to the heart. It cuts between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It cuts to the truth. And I believe that for some of us, God has cut to a particular point. He's shown us the knife edge between compromise and between faithfulness. And it's in the small things. It's in tiny margins. It's in the things that we don't think matter. But God says, repent, turn around, change your way of thinking, turn to me instead. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing together. And if you want to be more faithful to Jesus, if that's actually something that you feel that God is nudging you on, if you feel that, that cut to the heart, that cut to the deepest sense of you. Then you can put a hand out in front of you. We don't need to look around or be nervous about it or feel like people are watching us. Just as a physical symbol that we want more of God and we want to be more faithful to him. So Father God, thank you that you speak truth over us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call us into greater faithfulness, that you want to sustain us and redefine us. We come to you now, God. We admit that we 
do not get it right all the time. We admit that we're not perfect, but we want to be in right standing with you. We want you to redefine us. We want that new name. We want to be made new, God. So as we hold out our hands, or just internally, ask you to fill us again, God. Would you fill us with your spirit? Strengthen us to be faithful to you. Show us the small things, God, where you don't want us to compromise anymore. Thank you that you are good, that you forgive, that your mercy is in you every morning and every moment. And would each one of us receive them now? Increase our faithfulness to you, Jesus. Amen. Faith will stand